the National Archives podcast series. Amiable Warriors, the history of the campaign for homosexual equality. Presented by Peter Scott Presland. This talk was recorded on the 23rd of February, 2016, at the National Archives, Q. Can I just say how delighted I am to be here, and I'm so delighted also that the National Archives is actually doing this kind of thing, because one of the things that I feel is important, as well as celebrating our history during this month is also getting into the mainstream. So much gay history is written by academics for other academics, very introverted, very inward looking. And I think it's about time we went out and told our story to the world in general. And that's certainly where I'm coming from or with this. Now, uh, this talk is billed as a history of the campaign for homosexual equality. Uh, but at the, risk, at the risk of making Vicky look a slight, slight bit of a prat, um, what I intend to do today is something of a prequel to that, uh, a prequel to CHE, or CHE, as it was known uh, to, to those who knew and loved or hated it. Um, let me just show you. I should explain, CHE started in the North, the Northwest Homosexual Law Reform Committee in Manchester, and in 1964 as a branch of a London-based organization, the Homosexual Law Reform Society, which was campaigning for the implementation of the Wolfenden Committee report. We tend to think that um, what happened in our histories, because it's what happened, was somehow inevitable. And sometimes we need to be reminded that events could have taken a very different turn if we'd had a British Magnus Hirschfeld or a similar figure we could have got decriminalized sex between gay men in the 1930s even, if Robert Reed, who I'll mention later, had been based in London rather than in Wells in Somerset, we might have had homosexual rights groups 10 years earlier than we did. CHE came into being in the mid-1960s, as I, as I said, uh, and grew over the next 10 years from a small huddle in a committee room in Manchester into a national organization with over 150 branches and over 5,000 members, the only ever mass gay democratic organization that we've ever had in this country. Um, it might have been something else that got to that position. It might have been Manfab. Where is it? There we are. Men and female homosexuals, and I can't remember what the whole thing is. It's a very, very tortuous acronym. Or it might have been MacMan, which was a splinter group from uh, Manfab. Or it might have been the National Federation of Homophile Organizations, any of those. It might have been the Gay Liberation Front that became the mass campaigning, but it wasn't. And this talk really is about why that Pleasure, privilege, importance fell to CHE rather than to anything else. You know, the journey that we have made as LGBT people in my lifetime has been, has been truly extraordinary. I mean, it's very difficult for younger people, I think, to comprehend, let alone empathize with, the levels of fear, ignorance, loneliness, and suffering which many lesbians and gay men spent their lives in when I was a child in the 1950s and 60s. I should explain that much of what I've got to say today will concern men, because men with their particular legal status turn up in the records more in trials and newspaper reports. This is not to say 
that lesbians and transsexuals didn't have equal degrees of suffering in different ways. Uh, it was just that they were very hidden. Um, there we are. That's the first lesbian magazine, Arena 3, started uh, by the Minorities Research Group in 1963, before uh, any of the gay men stuff that we're talking about today. Uh, and they were hidden, and they only came out when women's organizations like Arena 3 and Sappho and counseling services like the Albany Trust and Friend came to the fore. People talk about witch hunts in the 1940s and 1950s when sex between men was completely illegal. But as in so many things, there was a difference between what was going on in London and what was going on elsewhere in what we rather patronizingly used to call the provinces. In the provinces, there were mass arrests. What seemed to happen was that one person, usually a younger person, maybe a teenager, would be picked up by the police, often not even for a gay offence, but for maybe for something like shoplifting. In the course of the investigation, the police would discover maybe letters or a diary. They cajole the poor innocent into confessing to an offence and revealing the names of one of their partners or more, more than one of their partners. They'd hold out the promise that keep the case would be kept out of the papers or of getting off lightly in exchange for cooperation. And then that would lead them on to another person where the same treatment would be meted out and then another and then another until there were maybe 20 or more people in the dock at the same time and the news of the world could rub its hands over what they used to call a vice ring. The promises of leniency were of course useless and the widespread coercion illegal. In Altrincham, in 1936, there was chaos in the tiny police court when 29 men crammed into the dock, represented by nine different barristers and four solicitors. There was no evidence against any of them except the mutually incriminating confessions. There were sentences of three, four, five years penal servitude with 18 months hard labour. Albert Goldstraw got seven years because he is supposed to have led people on. 23 years later, the Man Manchester Evening Chronicle reported that statements made by seven men in sale contained filthy thoughts and language which would shock anyone. Among the seven, the same Albert Goldstraw. This time he got five years. So that's a total of 12 years spent in prison for entirely consensual sexual acts, mainly done in private, and many of them done several years previously. There should be a plaque somewhere to Albert Goldstraw, I feel, as the paradigm of all victims of that repressive law. But there was worse. In 1959, George Butler hanged himself in a cell in Durham Prison while awaiting trial for gross indecency. He had been in custody for over six weeks because the police had opposed bail. He was just 17 years old. Station. When 23 men were arrested in Abergavenny in 1942, one committed suicide by laying his head on a railway track so that a passing train exploded his skull. Another, ma another a married man, tried to commit suicide by taking 133 aspirins. A third one had a heart attack and had to be carried into the court on a stretcher, paralysed. Collectively, some 60-year sentences were handed down, and the two so-called ringleaders, got ten years apiece. What other word can there be for these kind of cases than witch hunt? Now, these cases, with their emphasis on importuning, gross indecency and buggery, 
albeit wrapped up in euphemisms in the paper, such as a certain crime, put the emphasis on sex. But there are glimpses of what we would now recognise as LGBT pride and declarations of love. In Alteringham, the 29 defendants burst into a round of applause when the defendant cross-examining Constable Harris declared, it is impossible for your worships to believe that one after the other, these men against whom the police had no evidence immediately volunteered statements which convicted themselves. In the same court 30 years later, Stephen Harding, a sales rep, shouted, this is a tissue of lies, I am not going to listen to this claptrap. He refused to shut up and had to be hustled from the court. When Margaret Kenyon appeared in 1946 at Thames Police Court for breach of the peace, she did so in trousers and a stiff collar. The prosecutor said, it is quite obvious the kind of life that you have been leading. And Kenyon replied, I don't think I have been doing anything wrong. I'm only 22, but I can do what I please. When he went to trial in Nottingham in 1964, John Clarkson offered in his statement this. We both fully understood what we were doing. We, we both fully understood that what we were doing was, by the antiquarian model, moral British code, illegal. Although in our own minds, we both knew to ourselves that we were doing right. And to date, our views about each other and what we were doing have never changed. Our affection for each other strengthened, the thought, strengthened to the thought of separation being unbearable. We have both been blissfully happy together. That was in 1963. And the rather faded photo, that's John Clarkson on the left a few years later with his lover Stephen. When the uh, famous theatre photographer Angus McBean went on trial in 1942, the prosecution was able to quote from 36 letters written to and from 16-year-old Tom Gill, the man he was in love with, and sneer, had they been written to a young woman with whom Gill was in love, they would easily have passed for normal love letters. Such expressions occurred as darling boy, hello honey pie, and absolutely lovely weekend, and dear Angus is so sweet. There is Angus McBean, famous theatre photographer, famed for doing rather surreal self-portraits and playing with lots of trick photography. That was taken in 1947, so it's just five years after what we're talking about And McBean got four years penal servitude with hard labour. So with a little bit of remission, he would have come out in 1945, and that was taken two years after that. The five other young men involved, including McBean's darling boy Tom, got between 15 months and three years. In London, there were no witch hunts as such, but other famous people like McBean got caught in the net. In 1953... Actor Sir John Geel, who was fined £10 for importuning in Chelsea. Editorials in the Sunday Express demanded that he be stripped of his title. He had a nervous breakdown, and it almost forced him off the stage. The same, and I should say that this play was the play that he was doing at the time. Uh, it was just trying out in Liverpool, and that is as the character that he was in A Day by the Sea. He didn't want to go on stage, but uh, Sybil Thorndike forced him to, basically. She orchestrated a standing ovation for him that night after his trial. He went back up to Liverpool and shitting himself in the wings. He was led on by Sybil Thorndike, and the whole house rose to its feet and gave him a round of applause. And that was a day by the sea. The same year, Labour MP William Field was convicted purely on the word of two policemen 
and purely on the basis that he had smiled at a couple of sailors. He resigned his seat. No one in the Labour Party spoke of the injustice, although Conservative MP John Maud, a barrister, gave his services at the, for the Defence Council for free. Most famously, Lord Montague of Bewley, Peter Wildwood and Wildblood and Michael Pitt-Ribbers were tried in 1953 on the evidence of two gay men in the RAF who were not themselves prosecuted. In, in the order, there's Bewley on the, on the left-hand side, that's Pitt-Ribbers in the middle, and that's Peter Wildblood on the right-hand side going off um, after one of the day's hearings uh, at, the, at the court. Um, at the end of the case, they got 18 months, while Bewley got uh, uh, 12 months. Wildblood, as soon as he wrote, as soon as he came out, wrote a book, a very, very angry book against the law, which brought home, as nothing else had done before then, the appalling situation in prison and treatment by treatment by the police. The case was so widely known that it became almost folkloric, and many first came to know both of it and of homosexuality itself through a very popular rugby song at the time. On the first day of Christmas, my true love sent to me, my Lord Montague of Bewley. On the second day of Christmas, my true love sent to me, two boy scouts and my Lord Montague of Bewley. And it goes on and it gets really filthy and I'm not going to go through the rest of it. These high-profile cases led, of course, to the setting up of a Home Office Committee, the Wolfenden Committee on Homosexuality and Prostitution, uh, whose papers are all here in the archive, and I'm looking at some of them this afternoon. Um, it took 10 years to get its recommendations on homosexuality even partly implemented, though the part about prostitution was on the statute book within two years. It's a sort of indication of the relative difficulty of talking about homosexuality and talking about, uh, about prostitution in the late 1950s. Uh, the fight for legislation in the UK, it should be said, was way, way behind that in other countries. Perhaps the single most important milestone in LGBT history was the passage in 1948 of the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights drafted, be it remembered, by a committee chaired by a lesbian, Eleanor Roosevelt. In 1951, the first international gay rights organization, the ICHE, sent a telegram, the first thing it did, to the United Nations, demanding human rights for homosexuals. On the west coast of America, there was the Mattachine Society by then. There was Arcadie in France, COC in Holland, organizations in Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. In this country, there was a long time lapse between the work of Edward Carpenter at the turn of the 20th century and the formation of the first campaigns in the late 1950s. The first voice in modern times raised was that of Robert Reed, this man here, a disgraced former headmaster who ran a solitary campaign against police malpractice and for public understanding of homosexuality throughout the 1940s and the early 1950s. I have a separate talk that I do about Robert Reed because he's a forgotten figure and he's very, very important and very, very brave, entirely admirable. Uh, when Wolfenden was published, he wrote to the Spectator saying there ought to be a support group for victims of the law and their families, which is that one. You say it's down, where is it? Yes. With his own address, absolutely. Eight Chamberlain Street. There's, there's, there's a there's a there's a report. There's a story behind Chamberlain Street because he sued. A you'll you'll like this, Richard, as somebody who was involved in the gay Christian movement. He he was dismissed from a school he was working at 
for taking a party of pupils on a bicycle tour to the wrong kind of churches. Because it, it was a Catholic school he was teaching at. He's actually a science master, but he was very interested in archaeology and church history and stuff. And he took them into Protestant churches. And he was sacked, and he threatened to sue them for this. And they settled out of court very hastily and gave him all the money. And with the money, he bought Chamberlain Street. He bought three cottages in a row, which actually kept him. The rent from them kept him when he was uh, dismissed from his school uh, later on. There we are. Uh, we desperately need some society to, to, to afford support and comfort to the victims and their families. Uh, then a week later, Tony Dyson, an English lecturer at Bangor University, a uh, very well-known, rather conservative, reactionary educationalist, and also very committed Christian, um, replied that he was setting up such a group. Here we are, Yes. Even more to the point, the formation of a society concerned to work for a change in the laws themselves. This is January 1958 when this happened. Uh, it would be a campaigning group, not a support group. And this was the Homosexual Law Reform Society. HLRS formed an honorary committee, a collection of the great and good designed to give the campaign respectability. It was a resolutely heterosexual organization in image and instructed its gay supporters to stay firmly in the closet. Its first secretary was a young married vicar, Andrew Halliday-Smith, with two children, the second a husband and wife team, the Newells. When the third secretary, who was gay, was appointed, he was under strict instructions never to admit it. There he is, barrister Edgar Wright, forced to work under a pseudonym Anthony Gray, and his choice of name Grey, something anonymous and dreary, shows just what he felt about this action that he had to take. In the mid-1960s, when he was the secretary, the HLRS office was full of helpful young gay men answering phones and addressing envelopes, um, including sociologist Ken Plummer, a um, very important pioneering professor of sociology. But they too were instructed to stay in the closet. In some ways, the HLRS was modelled on the campaign for nuclear disarmament, which was set up a few months previously, and attracting many of the same signatories. Bertrand Russell, J.B. Priestley and his wife Jaquetta Hawkes, E.M. Forster, Victor Galantz, Julian Huxley, Compton McKenzie, Trevor Huddleston, were all members of both. There's, the, there's their signatures, you see. These are the letters that they sent in saying, you can count me and use my name. Compton McKenzie there, Bertrand Russell, Julian Huxley, E.M. Forster... Jaquetta Hawkes, J.B. Priestley. And all these, all these, I should say, are in, this, in the Homosexual Law Reform Society archives, which are in the Hall Carpenter archive at the London School of Economics, if anybody wants to go and see these things. Lots of lovely things. Some of the signatures are rather touching. Ralph Vaughan Williams, the composer, it was about three weeks before he died, and he put his name to this and said, count me in, and it's very, very faint, shaky hand. Very touching, very touching. Graham Greene, there's another one who was involved. It's interesting, you know, the notorious philandering heterosexuals who supported, supported this. If you think of Robin Cook, for example, the MP in Scotland who died, great, great supporter of, um, of uh, equality in Scotland um, and so on. Now, where have we got to? I went slightly off. Yes, they got an office in Liverpool Street and later in the West End and a secretary. Peter Wildblood uh, penned a pamphlet, Homosexuals and the Law, and a copy was sent to every MP in anticipation of the first debate on the subject in 1960. 
But meanwhile, in Manchester, there was another shoot coming out of the soil in the person of a young member of Nelson Council, Alan Horsfall. Alan had been in a stable relationship at the time with uh, a man 20 years his senior, um, a school headmaster who was, uh, who was called Harold Pollard. They met at a local RAF club soon after the war, and Harold came to live with Alan's family when his own left the district. The two men shared a bed, and it says something about the degree of repression of the times, that they lay there in the same bed, in their flannelette pyjamas, for three weeks before, you know, all wondering and wanting and not daring to say anything, not daring to make the first move. Three weeks they lay there like that before discovering that each was gay. Alan was politicised, by, like many, by the Suez Crisis, in which Anthony Eden dragged Britain into a humiliating military adventure and lied to the House of Commons in the process. No modern parallels there, then. Alan joined the Labour Party, stood for the council, and to his own surprise got elected in 1958 in a landslide where every single seat on the council went to Labour. He decided to try and get Wolfenden adopted as official Labour Party policy. His motive was quite simple. He didn't, want it to be, he didn't want to be a criminal for the rest of his life, and he didn't want his relationship, his central relationship of his life, to be conducted in shame and secrecy forever. And remember that even though Wolfenden had brought the matter to public attention in the form of newspaper editorials and features, it was still unmentionable in many circles, and especially not in the presence of ladies. Wolfenden himself had suggested that in order to protect the sensibilities of the ladies on the Wolfenden committee, they should refer to the homosexuals as Huntleys and the prostitutes as Palmers, after the Huntley and Palmers biscuits that were very popular at the time. Women were regularly asked to leave the public gallery in courts where gay sex cases were coming up. They were, they were not deemed fit for their ears and women were excused jury service for those kind of cases. And when Alan tried to persuade a fellow councillor in Nelson to second his motion to the Ward Labour Party, this is from a memoir of his, we talked for an hour or so about anything and almost everything other than the content of my letter until his wife had to leave the room to attend to the children. He then told me in hushed tones that of course he hadn't been able to refer to the matter in front of his wife, but that he considered my intended action to be most unwise since homosexuality was totally unsuitable for discussion by the sort of people who attended the Ward Committee. Alan persisted. When the subject first came up on the agenda of his ward party, several aldermen objected to talking about it in mixed company, despite the fact that the Wolfenden Committee had included three women. By a succession of dirty tricks, it was deferred for nearly two years and then defeated on a rigged vote. It was clear that the Labour Party were terrified of the whole issue. Alan met many people at Labour Party conferences who said that although they agreed with him privately, they could never say so publicly because it would lose them so many votes. One of the ringleaders of this conspiracy of silence was Tom Dryberg, the most notorious queen in the Labour Party and a man whose sexuality thrived on danger. Then, that was the situation in 1962 when Lawrence Summers, a 16-year-old cellar man, murdered George Brynham, who had been chairman of the National Executive Committee of the Labour Party the year before. That, indeed, is him speaking at the party conference of 1959. Brynham had picked Summers up in the street, taken him for tea and to the cinema, and then invited him back to his flat. He said to Summers, give us a kiss, and tried to put his arms round the lad. 
who hit him with a heavy decanter four times and bashed in his skull. When it came to the trial, the defense maintained that, quote, one is entitled to kill a man if a man commits a forcible and atrocious crime against you. And the judge, Mr. Justice Paul, agreed that it was, quote, about as clear a case of provocation as it is possible to have. Paul ordered the jury to acquit, even of manslaughter, and Summers went back to a hero's welcome in his hometown of Matlock, where they put out the bunting. While waiting in prison for the trial, Summers received hundreds of letters of support. All the warders at Brixton Prison congratulated him when he was discharged, and he sold his story for several thousand pounds to the news of the world, the night I killed George Brindham. In the face of this judicial and social encouragement to murder, the Labour Party said absolutely nothing. Having fallen at the first hurdle to get the Labour Party to do anything, Allen came at reform another way. He joined the HLRS and almost immediately asked to set up a local branch in Manchester. The London people rebuffed him in an extraordinarily patronising way. Uh, the secretary, Veronica Newell, wrote to him, I, I, I'm not sure if this is how she sounds, but this is how I imagine her sounding. Unfortunately, we're always found in this office that although we get as many splendid, able and willing volunteers, we also seem always to get a percentage of crackpots and shifty types. I don't understand why, but the office acts like a magnet to them. and One has to be very careful. One's work is so valuable and one doesn't want to endanger it anyway by taking risks. In other words, we Londoners know best and we don't want any actual homosexuals rocking the boat. Three years later, with the more savvy Anthony Gray as secretary of the HLRS, they did get a branch going, the North Western Homosexual Law Reform Committee, NWHLRC. A uh, very mouthful of a, of a name, that. Alan ran this from his own home, a cottage owned by the coal board in a small mining village near Nottingham called Atherton. And he got publicity in the local paper, the Lee Reporter, Eight column banner headline. You'd only get column, you only get headlines like that when, when war is being declared or something like that. Uh, and what's more, it says, it, the story gives Alan's address at the end. This was quite deliberate because many Labour MPs were in mining constituencies. And one of the standard arguments against law reform was the miners won't stand for it. Now, here was somebody actually running a highly vis visible campaign. And look, the sky doesn't fall in. The organisation met in a committee room in Manchester, lent by the local Bishop of Middleton. That's there, the committee room where they meet. There ought to be a plaque outside that. That's one of our ones to have a campaign there. I went there to take these photographs and I went inside and I discovered that it had just been bought by a couple of young gay men, um, a, a builder and his partner. And they were absolutely delighted to find the, what, the history behind this and they were, ter they were terribly, terribly pleased. That's, the, that's Ted Wickham, the, the Bishop of, of, of Middleton. Um, he was one of the very, very few working-class clergy to make it up the ecclesiastical greasy pole. And he espoused many unpopular political causes, and he spoke with a real sort of aggressive cockney bluntness, apparently, which got up the noses of much of the uh, church establishment. What, it, what immediately distinguished the North West Committee from the society in London was that although it had its share of liberal heterosexual do-gooders, the vicars and psychiatrists and social workers, it made strenuous efforts to attract gay people to the organisation. It had support from Reg Kilduff, the owner of the Manchester Gay Club, the Rockingham, which allowed a collecting tin in a discreet corner. 
but only with the initials so as not to draw the attention of the police. Uh, Kilduff was paying considerable backhanders in order to keep the club out of trouble, unlike other Manchester clubs, which did get prosecuted regularly. Alan was also allowed to go round the club and talk to people about the law and about the efforts to change it and invite people along to committee meetings. Still, it was a lonely furrow he was ploughing. As he wrote later, anyone who says they got involved before 1960 without trepidation, trepidation is a liar. Gay friends shunned him, went to the other end of the bar rather than sit and have a drink with him. They told him, please don't talk to me. His partner of 10 years, Harold, was advised that if he didn't want his teaching career lying in tatters, he'd better stop seeing Alan. So insistent was the pressure, Alan even bought a separate house for presentation purposes only to avoid putting his partner's position in jeopardy. As a result of this recruiting, attendances in the early meetings in 1964 and 1965 were good. Until Ted Wickham said, well, if you're going to have a committee, you're going to be a committee, you've got to be formal and organised, you've got to have members, and you've got to keep minutes. And the prospect of having to give your name and for it to appear on paper was too much for many of the more timid supporters. And so that support did melt away slightly. But it gradually built up again. And by the time the law actually changed in the summer of 1967, the homosexual members were in the majority. Some of the supporters were already dipping a toe into the kind of campaigning which went beyond reform of a particular law relating to sexual behaviour. This is a woman called Meg Elizabeth Atkins. At the time, uh, this was taken about 1980, about 25 years after the time we're talking about. At the uh, she was a young novelist at the time we're talking about who took it on herself to tackle the issue of employment. She would go round to the largest industrial estate in Manchester and talk to personnel officers, the Trafford Estate. That's what the Trafford Estate looked like in the mid-1960s. And she told me when I interviewed her, I'd always be very well-dressed and presentable, hat and gloves. I would go in and I'd say, may I see your welfare officer, please? So they thought, well, she's not selling anything. And then they said, who are you? I said, I'm from the Law Reform Society. If I'd said homosexual, I wouldn't have got in. But that was the attitude of the time. Once I was in, of course, I came clean immediately. But I felt that people should talk. Nowadays, we call it raising awareness. Now, the key detail in that is the hat and gloves. I, I, I should explain. You can probably get an idea of it from her picture. Meg was very, very, very glamorous. Uh, the kind of clothes, she had a kind of models, clothes, horse, body, which you can hang any clothes off and, and they look fantastic. She had beautiful high cheekbones. Picture, so if, so picture, if you will, Audrey Hepburn or maybe Kay Kendall going around this estate in a huge picture hat and the elbow length gloves of the 1960s, 50s and early 60s. In the grime of industrial Ma Manchester, working among the sooty factories. But she knew why she was doing it. It was mainly men, this is her again, though if there was a woman welfare officer, she was very sympathetic and understanding. The man would take me into his office, sit me down. Oh, so you're from the Law Reform Society? I'd said, well, actually, I'm from the homosexual law. Oh, pause, a big pause. And then I just had to say that there was a great deal of pressure now for change in the law. You're probably aware of that. Is there, or yes, or about bloody time, or there shouldn't be. A whole gamut of possible reactions. There was one guy who was very leering, very crude, which was the kind of thing you would meet then. And another man tried to make a date with me. It was terribly funny. I wouldn't have been seen dead with him. I would have to play it by ear to take it from there. 
If I had a totally unsympathetic person to speak to, I knew I wasn't going to get very far. So I'd just say, well, perhaps you'd be interested in this literature and get out quickly. Or, obviously, I'm in the wrong place. Yes, you bloody well are. Or I'd say, thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. And I'd sidle out. But sometimes people were relieved to talk. Quite a lot of people did say to me, well, we have had difficulties. Of course, it was illegal then, so they couldn't show support. I never had any tangible evidence of what effect I'd had, but it was just building contacts. It contributed to a climate of opinion. You've got to start somewhere. Mine was a tiny contribution to it. When my mother found I'd joined this society, she was speechless with horror. We didn't talk about it. And my boyfriend I had at the time that I joined, he said, you mustn't tell anybody. I said, what do you mean? If I want to talk about it, I'll talk about it. He said, you don't realize it could damage your reputation. <laughs> you mean as a writer? I've only just started. I haven't got a reputation. He said, yes, it'll damage it. The amount of prejudice was awful. It was hurtful. It used to hurt me. This approach to what was needed in this is the key to why the Northwest Committee survived, where the Homosexual Law Reform Society in London didn't. Once the Sexual Offences Act was passed in 1967, heterosexual supporters like Professor A.J. Eyre and J.B. Priestley, we mentioned, thought, oh, well, job done. They left. Donations plummeted, and any reserves were eaten up paying for the office and the dwindling staff. With an effort, it just about transformed itself into the much smaller Sexual Law Reform Society, shadowing an official legal revision committee due to report on the whole area of law and sexuality and not just gay stuff. Its counselling wing, the Albany Trust, survived and is indeed still going strong. With the change in the law, there were different questions to ask now. What did homosexuals need now and what did homosexuals want? The Albany Trust decided that what they needed was counselling and social work. In other words, homosexuality was still an acceptable cause to espouse as long as it was seen as in some way a problem, as long as homosexuals could be pathologised, psychoanalysed and patronised. In, in Manchester, by contrast, what, where the membership was gay and known to be gay, they didn't ask what did homosexuals need, they asked what do we want? And the answer came, not social workers, but social centres. People who were in the habit of going off to Blackpool together for weekend orgies, as the Northwest Committee people were, were not going to settle for some earnest do-gooding. Members of the Northwest Committee set up a company, Esquire Clubs, with a view to starting what we would now call gay centres. There were a number of models for this around. Lesbians and gay men from London and the South East who went to Amsterdam would have gone to the COEC centre, where they could get a meal, hear a talk and dance with someone of their own sex unlike in England, where the owners of clubs which allowed same-sex dancing were prosecuted for running disorderly houses. In Paris, Arcady, which also published a magazine and held lectures, ran the best disco in the city. That's the, that's the Arcady disco around about 1960. Uh, you can see it's on the cusp of, of, of dance styles, because the men in front are doing the standard, sort of like a waltz or something, whereas the two guys behind them are doing a sort of freeform jive kind of dance as well. And look, note the, the one to the far right with his hands on his hips in that very, very camp pose. So I say that's around about 1960. There were far more potent local models and uh, traditions in Manchester, however, which was rather parochial in its outlook and had less experience. Every town in Lancashire and Yorkshire across the industrial belt had its own working men's club, owned by its members, run by an elected committee, with cheap drinks, but also with food and talks and, above all, entertainment. 
In the mining towns, there were miners' institutes as well, which provided much the same thing. It was part of the great tradition of self-improvement and self-help in the North, epitomized by the Rochdale pioneers and the cooperative movement. In the vision of Horsfall and his friends, Esquire Clubs, the homosexual answer to the working men's club, would have the same things, but they would also have medical advice and legal advice and a library. Because in their view, not only public opinion had to be changed into the social climate of acceptance, but homosexuals themselves had to be educated and given the confidence to come out. Coming out is often seen as something which the Gay Liberation Front invented in the 70s, an offshoot of American-style hippie-style consciousness-raising groups. But here is Roger Baker, CHE's press officer, in August 1970, three months before the first meeting of GLF, writing the editorial in Spartacus magazine. We still have a long way to go to be accepted, and we will never become accepted as normal rather than queer unless those of us who are indistinguishable from heterosexuals in appearance and manner are prepared to be honest about ourselves. In other words, coming out as a political act, a weapon in the fight for acceptance. The difference between CHE's version of coming out and GLF's version is that for CHE, you do it for other people and for a political cause. For GLF, you do it for yourself to sweep away the cobwebs of straight society in your own brain and to assert your own identity. And only as a consequence of that was it political. Uh, while we're on the subject of differences between CHE and GLF, one of the many myths of LGBT history is that CHE was middle-aged, middle-class, and middle-of-the-road. GLF was a rainbow, CHE was beige. I hope I've shown that the roots of CHE at least lie in working-class northern culture. And as for age, it is not generally known that the two people who fashioned CHE between 1968 and 1971 into a national organization were Paul Temperton and Martin Stafford, two teenagers when they joined, both under the age of consent, both illegal throughout this entire time, who ran the organization from the basement of Martin's parents' house and were a gay couple acknowledged by Martin's family if not Paul's. I haven't got a photo of them both together. That's Paul Temperton, the first general secretary of CHE. That was taken about 1967. That, that's about eight years after he was doing these things. You can see he, he looks pretty young there. He looks about sort of in his mid to late 20s there. So you can imagine, 18-year-old general secretary of the, the Northwest Committee, as it was when he first joined. Anyway, there in practice, there were many occasions on which CHE and GLF cooperated, perhaps the most important of which was a public meeting in Burnley Public Library in July 1971. That's, due, that's uh, Burnley Public Library, another place where we want to get a plaque outside. Um, what happened was it was called by CHE, this meeting, to confront the opponents of a gay club in the town. There was the, the possibility, the prospect of an Esquire club in Bur Burnley. Uh, a contingent from GLF went up in a minibus from London to support CHE on this. It was a very fraught encounter. There were groups of skinheads present, and the police confiscated the skinheads' boots before they went in. This is the lobby of the, uh, of the library, and all the boots were put under the chairs on here. So you'd have a row of cherry red buffer boots all around before they went into the actual library. The Londoners, as soon as they arrived, started checking where the exits were in case they needed to beat a quick retreat. It was that kind of atmosphere. It was an oppressive, thundery night with the rain beating on the roof. The hall was packed. The meeting was raucous. The Christian coalition formed to fight Esquire shouted that there'd be no buggers clubs in Burnley. If people wanted that sort of thing, they could go to Manchester. 
that Father Neville, the leader of the, the Christian opposition, and presumably some of his supporters with the Mary White House glasses along the bottom there. This, these are taken from at, at, at the meeting itself there in the local paper at the time which covered it. The GLF people heckled Father Neville. A 19-year-old student, Glenis Parry, had to be dragged off him before she, dis she clobbered him. And then one of the GLF people, Andrew Lumsden, who later became a founder of the magazine Gay News, stood up and said, it seems to me that everyone is talking as if there were no homosexuals in Burnley and no homosexuals here at this meeting either. Well, I'm homosexual and I'd like to ask any other homosexuals here to stand up and be counted. That's Andrew with Michael James in the middle there. He's the one on the left-hand side and the one not in the frock. That's Andrew. Um, he, he didn't have a very assertive voice, Andrew, and he was way down the front of a very rowdy meeting, so not everybody heard this. But Ray Gosling, who was a CHE person who was, and was the director, a director of the Squire Clubs and who was chairing the meeting as a big sort of Granada media TV personality, seized the moment, drama queen that he was. That's right, he, that's Ray chairing the meeting. That's right, he bellowed to the back. Who's homosexual here tonight? I want all the puffs and queers here to stand up and be counted. Let's show them. And he raised his hand to set an example. The GLFers from London stood up. Slowly, Michael Steed and Ken Pilling, who were the speakers on the panel, stood up. An out-of-town contingent from Liverpool CHE stood up. The Manchester crowd, the students, stood up. Gradually, little knots of people stood up here and there all around the hall until somewhere between a good third and half of the more than 300 people there were on their feet. Some of them, it turned out, weren't gay but were family and friends of gay people standing in a moment of solidarity. It was a kind of I am Spartacus moment, if you remember the film. For more than one individual, this was a life-changing moment, the moment that they first stood up among strangers to say, I am gay. And it was the event which defined the kind of synergy which was possible when two different tributaries of what Andrew Lumsden calls the Amazon of effort come together. That it hasn't had the kind of attention and coverage which its importance demands is largely because it happened outside London. And LGBT history, as I mentioned, has recently been, like most other history, London-centric. As it happened, Esquire Clubs never happened because of the social and legal barriers placed in the way of them. So instead, CHE went down a route which developed local groups so that gay space, instead of being fixed and invested in bricks and mortar, became portable, something that lesbians and gay men created around themselves wherever they gathered. However, the idea behind Esquire Clubs remained potent, inspiring the gay centres that sprang up in the late 1970s and 1980s, including the very large London Lesbian and Gay Centre in Cowcross Street, which opened in 1986. The Northwest Committee changed its name to the Committee for Homosexual Equality in 1969. That advert is 1967. And it marked a step change from the narrow legal focus of eliminating a particular injustice, penalising sexual behaviour. It changed its name to, I don't know, yes, there we are, the Committee for Homosexual Equality, if you can see the address where you were invited to write to. Uh, 
So we're going back to the whole idea of human rights for homosexuals. This is what broadens it from law reform in one particular way to a whole critique of society. It demanded a decent sex education, which treated homosexuality as a valid lifestyle. It demanded equal access to goods and services, an end to discrimination in employment, which we've seen Meg campaigning about, a social climate which welcomed diversity and plurality. In other words, from that one change, in words, springs the framework from which all the gains of the last 20 years have been achieved. Finally, it transformed itself in 1971 to the campaign for homosexual equality. And the whole word of campaign was so radical that a lot of members left in a huff because they didn't like how left-wing the word campaign was. And you can see it says at the bottom, sponsored by the campaign for homosexual equality. As I say, this was July 1971. Uh, you know, such was the level of oppression and self-oppression at the time that there were many in the gay community who thought the age of consent should stay at 21, that they were suffering from an unfortunate condition. These are the kind of words that people used about themselves at the time. They felt that people shouldn't draw attention to themselves, which is what the word campaign was doing. Homosexuality was something that could be passed on to others, a fate to be avoided for the young. So they agreed that they should be kept away from the young. The, next, the history of the next 40 years, from 1970 onwards, is not only the history of a struggle for extending human rights to LGBT people, it's also the history of eliminating self-oppression, of education. It's the story of persuading LGBT people themselves that they deserve those human rights and that they are worthy of equality. And in that, CHE played a very, very significant part, along with the Gay Liberation Front and later the Gay Activist Alliance, outrage and ultimately Stonewall, which is the current major sort of political player in conventional sense, which would be the first to admit that its success was built on the shoulders of others who struggled in their dark, those darkest days. The story of that struggle over the next 40 years is, however, another story. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.